Hey y'all, welcome to the last episode of the year. Remember the episode, Black Vaudeville Performers Wore Blackface? Well, this episode is kind of like a prequel to that episode. That was really the second generation of post-Civil War Black performance culture. So we're going to talk about the first generation, both about Black minstrels, but more focused on spirituals. That was super popular and common to see because it was thought to be straight from the plantation. Really, the legacy and the popularity of that music is still around today. My guest today is Professor Sandra Jean Graham of Babson College, author of Spirituals and the Birth of a Black Entertainment Industry. Let's get into it. I was just thinking like, about how the book is about cultural production and the way that sometimes people have to produce culture the way that other people want it to be seen. Absolutely. Which like, I don't know why, it made me think of like Hawaii and how like luau's aren't like what it's like to be a Hawaiian in the 21st century. Like people do that because that's what tourists come for. It's not, that's not like authentic Hawaiian experience. It's just what we've been like told it is. So then people get mad if that's not what they see. And that's a lot of what this book is about. It is, especially in the 19th century. So growing out of the period of enslavement, when Black Americans started to enter the entertainment industry, they had to perform basically the caricatures or the ideal types that white Americans had of them. So change came, but it came very slowly. And it was always a real tricky negotiation, right, between trying to be the artist they wanted to be, but also having to attract the white audiences and fulfill their expectations of what blackness was, which was always linked to slavery. Because, you know, even in the North, the first time a lot of Northern white audiences saw black people on the stage via groups like the Fisk Jubilee Singers, many of them had never seen a black person before. And they only knew of blackness through slavery. That idea is so interesting. And if this conversation is going to be about spirituals, I feel like a good opening question is just like, what are spirituals? Because it is like a kind of fluid term throughout history. Well, it is because there is no one spiritual. I mean, spirituals are religious folk songs created by Black enslaved Americans, but they're really defined through the way they're performed. So in the era of slavery, they were folk songs because they were passed on orally. They weren't written down at first, and they could be composed spontaneously or, you know, they were always changing forms because they were passed on orally. But then over time, as people began notating them, they became a little more fixed or standardized at the same time that they existed in folk performance, right? Oral tradition. So then you have these dual waves of folk performance and then kind of rehearsed performance, which was like the Fist Jubilee Singers, where their concert spirituals, which were performed on stage, were arranged in four-part harmony for soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And then you keep carrying on through history as we approach the Harlem Renaissance. You have uh, educated composers who want to use the spirituals as the basis of art music. So they use them as the basis of solo art songs or concert spirituals, or they use them as the basis of organ solos or as the basis of instrumental music. 
and they keep on getting developed and developed. So when you say a spiritual, let's say go down Moses, that's that's a spiritual that most all of us know probably if we know anything about spirituals. But the question is, what does it sound like? And that depends on how it's performed, the performance tradition it's associated with. And there are loads and loads and loads of those. That's what makes it hard to define a spiritual, I think. That's kind of not a conflict. I can't think of a better word than conflict, but something that comes up in your book pretty often is the like tension, maybe, between the refinement of spirituals and the authentic spiritual. Because as you were saying, part of what makes a spiritual spiritual is how it's performed. Mm-hmm. And because their origins are slavery and like folk songs sung on plantations, there's that way to perform it. But then there's also, as you were saying, the way that you can perform it as like a four part harmony written down in a more polished way. And those two different types of spirituals came into conflict in the book. I, I know what you're saying. I don't think they were in conflict as much as they coexisted in two really different worlds. So folk spirituals served largely rural populations. This is after emancipation, let's say. They served fairly rural populations because Blacks who had moved to urban areas and who went to church started to embrace white church anthems, you know, instead of the spirituals, because that was a marker of class. So they were middle and upper class. And if they performed spirituals, they wanted the arranged spirituals, the ones that sounded like the white church anthems. But even even in the folk tradition, there still was no standard. You know, you could have Gullah spirituals from the sea islands, which would sound really different from inland spirituals from, say, Maryland or Virginia. Or you could have a spiritual that traveled from one area to another and changed along the way. And then, because there was no one right way to perform a spiritual, you could have one with 14 verses and another with three verses, or someone would just write new words. So these were really fluid and flexible songs that served the need of whoever was singing them, which I think is just so cool. And in fact, this morning, there was a deacon named James Garfield. He's from St. Helena's Island, Sea Island. And for this new book I'm writing, I was listening to an oral history he did. And uh, he died in 2020 at the age of 100. Whoa. Yeah. So he's born in 1920. And he learned these songs. He was singing these songs in the interview. He learned them from his grandmother. Like, it gives me the shivers to think about this is the voice of the enslaved coming through him. But one thing he said during this interview, the reason I brought him up, the guy who was interviewing him said, okay, well, I think there's three verses to this song. He goes, yeah, there can be three verses. There can be four. You can make it as long or as short as you want to. You know, basically, he's just saying, you can do whatever you want with these spirituals. There aren't rules. So you mentioned the way that when Black people started moving into cities, they kind of wanted to detach themselves from spirituals. I guess because spirituals were associated with slavery and they didn't want to be seen through that lens. And that comes through really clearly in the story of the Fisk Jubilee singers. They originally were not trying to sing spirituals. That came later. So yeah, let's start talking about the story of the Fisk Jubilee singers. 
since they're super important to the book. Their story is very well known by now, but when George White, who was their director and also the school's treasurer, he started a singing class at Fisk School at lunchtime. It wasn't a university. And over time, he got this group of really good voices together. And he decided, let's form a band and go on the road and sing and try to raise money for the school. So his interest in music, he was an amateur musician, and his interest in making money, because he was a school's treasurer, they kind of coincided there in this group. And so when they went on the road, they were singing patriotic songs and parlor songs like Stephen Foster songs, like Old Folks at Home. And they weren't really getting a lot of interest from audiences, because if you think about it, white audiences who go to these things, they could hear really great, famous musicians singing these songs in concert. So why would they go hear a bunch of Black students from a struggling school in the South sing these same songs? And it was just by accident. Well, we don't really know exactly how George White and the leaders at Fisk learned of the spirituals. It seems likely that they overheard them singing one time, and then they wanted to hear more, and they made the students sing them for them. And that's how they got to know of their existence. But it was only on the road that George White thought, okay, well, let's just try a couple of these. When they went to this like convention of congregational churches at Oberlin, they sang a couple spirituals, and people were just bowled over. And so then he just quickly starts arranging these spirituals on the road and reverses their kind of program so that they sing one or two white songs and the rest are spirituals. And that's how they made their fame. But not everybody loved that idea at first because it was painful for them. You know, maybe they had parents, grandparents who died. Maybe they had been taken away from their parents because of slavery. Maybe they themselves had been slaves. And so the emotional resonance of those songs was something that they wanted to remember, but not necessarily perform. It's like performing trauma in a way. And I think what changed their mind was George White was a fervently Christian and devoted man who loved spirituals. And I think that he persuaded them of their beauty and of their continued relevance. And if they were an outlet for their ancestors to get through their days of pain and hardship through a kind of spiritual release then the students could do the same for themselves while still honoring their forebears. That's as close as I can come to the reasoning. We just don't know. It's so interesting. I mean, a lot of things you just said, the idea of white people being like, well, we can go see white people singing white people songs, so why would we want to go see black people doing that? Mainly because there was no model for white people to interpret a black body and a black voice on stage. They'd never seen it before. You know, most people hadn't. And back in those days, if people hadn't seen it, because, you know, no TV, no social media, they didn't have a way to interpret it. They had to be taught how to interpret it. Huh. Another super interesting part about the beginning of the Fisk Jubilee Singers is how much of a gamble it was. Such a gamble. Fisk didn't have any money when they went on the road. They were gambling money that they didn't have in the hopes of this music group being successful. It was crazy. 
And there was a lot of debate about it. George White was an extremely stubborn man. And, you know, the head of the school, the district manager of the American Missionary Association, very much did not want George White to go on the road. They almost came to blows about it. But it just speaks to George White's faith. He was somebody who had total faith in God, in himself, and in the students. But still, you're right. It was a gamble, and it was a gamble like he was responsible for this group of 10 students. In a totally racist country, it was dangerous for them, too, on top of everything. Part of starting to add spirituals to their repertoire was that they actually represented what they were doing differently. You have a section in your book where you talk about how at first they said that they were doing concerts, Mm -hmm. but then they changed it to this idea of songs of service. Yeah. Because that... That went over better? It emphasized their Christian mission. Remember what I said, that white audiences didn't really have a way to interpret black bodies on the stage? Now they did. Because if they were singing a service of song, they were now viewed as Christian missionaries in the service of the Lord. That was way more comfortable for people. It was also way more familiar. And the songs, even though they sounded kind of weird to a lot of white people who only knew hymns before, they still had a basis for interpreting them. I think that was a a very smart marketing decision, and it gave them a way to explain themselves to audiences through a little sermon or speech at the beginning of each concert. And the church was what made them wildly successful. They went to New York, and there was kind of one big interaction that they had that kind of took them from being unknown to known. Henry Ward Beecher, the most famous preacher in America. It's hard for us today, like maybe people are familiar with pastors of mega churches or something on TV, but this was before TV and his sermons were carried in every newspaper in America. His daily doings were followed in gossip columns. He provided plenty of gossip. (laughs) (laughs) in his life. And by embracing the Fist Jubilee singers, he really launched them on their career in New York City. Oh, we should talk about the name where Jubilee singers came from, because they did not go out originally as the Fist Jubilee singers. That name came later. Right. And that was also important to their success because they were called a whole bunch of different things that didn't really identify what their mission was. But Jubilee Singers, which comes from the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament, the year of Jubilee, when the slaves were freed, that really gave people a way to recognize that these were emancipated former slaves. And it added to the religious tone of what they were singing. And it's really interesting, too, because they sang spirituals. The spirituals gained a second name, which was Jubilee Songs. So the two songs were intertwined, thanks to the Fist Jubilee singers. One of the wild things was that it took almost no time for more Jubilee groups to come about after the Fist Jubilee singers. It was within, like, months. It's the American way. (laughs) You know, you see somebody being successful, you copy them and try to do the same thing yourself. So yeah, immediately there were other groups. And initially, a lot of these groups were just fake groups. They couldn't really sing and they were capitalizing on the Jubilee name. And that kind of hurt the Fist Jubilee singers. But within a year, other really legitimate groups decided to follow that model. 
the most famous of them being the Hampton Institute Singers. And they were a wonderful group. They toured solidly for about three years before economic hardship, like the country went through bad economic times. And so the Hampton Singers kind of dissolved for a while, and then they reconstituted for the rest of the century. But they were a really, really important group. And then other groups, the Tennesseans, and and some of them were associated with colleges, like Hampton and Fisk, but others began to form independently and just sing for themselves instead of educational institutions or religious institutions. And this is where we begin to see the building of a Black entertainment industry, because they're beginning to make a living through performance instead of donating all of their proceeds to the school. Now, the Fish Jubilee Singers, they did get paid. They were paid toward the end of their career anywhere between $500, I think, and $750 a year, according to the latest contracts that I've found. And that's really significant because the white teachers at Fisk made about $100 a year. So many of them were able to buy plots of land and build houses as a result of being paid that way. So even though they worked really, really hard, many of them felt that it was worth it in the end because of what they were able to establish for the rest of their lives. There were imitation groups of the Fist Jubilee Singers, but then parody came pretty quickly after, which was like a completely different realm of performance. Yeah, it's fascinating. At the time that the Fist Jubilee Singers were going out, the most popular entertainment genre in America was blackface minstrelsy. And that was one reason that the school was scared to send out the Fist Jubilee Singers, who weren't yet the Fist Jubilee Singers. They didn't want to send out their students because they were afraid they'd be mistaken for blackface minstrels, which would be degrading and it would reflect poorly on the school's reputation. You know, so that that was a real fear. So blackface minstrelsy began in the 1840s. It really changed during and after the Civil War simply because legitimately black American troops started forming as minstrels. Some of them blacked up their faces as a convention because white people expected to see it, and others did not. So that's one thing that was going on, and I'll I'll get back to that later. But as soon as something was popular in America, minstrels parodied it. It didn't matter what race you were. It didn't matter like if you were the most exalted person in the world, like the President of the United States, or even the Reverend Beecher, who I mentioned before, or a great actress or singer. Everybody was parodied in the minstrel show. And so Pretty much within a couple years, there were parodies of spirituals in the minstrel show by white minstrels. So they would take the tune of a spiritual and then write new words to it. But what's really interesting are two things. One was a group called the Hamtown Singers. The Hamtown Singers was a play on the Hampton Singers, right? This was initially a white group who performed spirituals I don't think that they made fun of the spirituals. It's impossible to know. But as far as I can tell, what they did was they parodied the performance practice of groups like Fisk and Hampton. Why did they think that was funny? Because here you have black students 
informal wear, singing spirituals as seriously as they might sing an operatic aria or a Handel oratorio. So what I think they were lampooning was that self-seriousness, right? Because they issued a booklet of spirituals that they performed with music, and they were the legitimate spirituals. They weren't parodies. It's hard to know what to make of that. But what we do know is that Black troops started forming their own Hamtown singers. <laughs> and then Hamtown singers became a generic name, and pretty much every popular minstrel troupe, white and Black, had their own Hamtown singers. And that relates directly back to the Fistubli singers. But then there's another root of parody that happened, and that had to do mainly with the Black minstrel performers taking a spiritual, the tune of a spiritual, and writing new words to it, but the words were not religious at all. They could be really derogatory. They could be painting caricatures of Black singers. And one person who did, like there were many people who did this, Sam Lucas, James Bland, and a whole bunch of other people. So for instance, Lucas took Go Down Moses, and he wrote new words to it called Carve That Possum. But like, are you going to blame him for doing that? This was music that came out of the Black tradition. It was folk music. And people were already writing new words to it, religious words, but new words to it wherever it traveled. So he grew up singing spirituals. He figured, okay, this is a song I know. I'm going to write new words to it. He wasn't overly concerned that he was, you know, kind of spamming a, a religious tradition. At the same time, I don't think he loved doing that, but he recognized that this was how to get ahead in the entertainment business. And so this is what that first generation of Black minstrel entertainers were up against, because people after the war, they didn't want to see white Blacked-up entertainers depicting Southern plantations and scenes of slavery. They wanted to see Black entertainers do it because that was the, quote, real thing, unquote. It was fake authenticity, but that's what they wanted to see. And so that's what um, the Black entertainers were forced to give them at first until they very, very, very gradually, and this took a very long time, 60, 70 years, moved away from that. I guess we should step back real quick and talk about this white obsession with plantation culture and seeing Black people in slavery, even though slavery was over, because that is it's a little weird. It's really weird. Yeah, after the Civil War, we have the South, who, you know, all Southerners were suffering because of Reconstruction, and they felt, they felt disenfranchised, <laughs> even though they had disenfranchised Black Americans for a very long time. And so Reconstruction was a very unsettled time. And at the end of Reconstruction, Southerners, they began, or even during Reconstruction, they began to long for what they thought were the sunny days of slavery, when the slave was devoted to his so-called old massa, you know, and that everything was harmony and that the mammy in the big house took care of the children as if they were her own and always had a smile on her face. These are the caricatures that were propagated in popular culture. And so people wanted to see that. 
the Stephen Foster songs, Way Down Upon the Swanee River, Old Folks at Home, that depicted the Old South. They became popular again, along with a whole lot of other songs of that ilk. So that the dark days of slavery, the pain of slavery, it got depicted as maybe slaves on the auction block in a scene that was also containing slaves picking cotton in the cotton fields and dancing and riverboats in the background, you know, all this fictionalized, romanticized Old South. And that kind of disappeared with the rise of Jim Crow and segregation and the shifting caricatures in the late 80s and 90s of Black men, especially as violent, as carrying knives, as, you know, becoming malevolent and sexual predators and stuff. But up until then, they were the happy slave. That's what white people wanted. Since we're talking about staging an idealized Old South, let's get more into theater specifically and talk about Uncle Tom's Cabin, the show. Uncle Tom's Cabin was the most popular book after the Bible in the 19th century. And so what happened after the war, even before the war, there were stage productions of Uncle Tom's Cabin. It got adapted to the stage and people would go to see it. It's like, I think of Wizard of Oz, something that I've seen like a million times in my life, just because it's it's a ritual, right? And people would go see Uncle Tom's Cabin the same way over and over and over again, anytime it came to town. And it traveled all over the United States. So after the Civil War, Tom Troops started incorporating Jubilee Singers, which was kind of funny because Jubilee Singers didn't exist before the war when Uncle Tom's Cabin was written. So you can see that a lot of liberties were taken. But it gave the production a contemporary flavor in the 1870s by having Jubilee Troops. Sometimes they sang spirituals. Sometimes they sang hymns. Sometimes they sang kind of minstrel songs. It depended on the troupe, and it depended on who was producing it. So that's how that whole strain of Jubilee performance developed after the Civil War, and that went on into the early 1900s. If I remember correctly, Uncle Tom's Cabin was usually traditionally performed like in blackface, but then the Jubilee singers would actually usually be black when they were incorporated in. Some of the characters would have been performed in blackface, but in the 1870s, they started, actually, Sam Lucas was, was, I think, the very first legitimately black Uncle Tom. And so they started using black actors for those roles. Topsy was usually in blackface and a totally minstrelized character. So it, it depended on the production, but gradually, black actors and actresses began to be incorporated in those productions. But the show was, it had turned into almost a vaudeville act. You know, there there was the drama, there was still the play, but there were also live animals incorporated and, you know, all sorts of specialty performers. So it became, it, it became this kind of overblown, really big kind of entertainment that was in keeping with the times of the late 19th century that loved these kind of spectacles. It was a spectacle. Another just like wildly interesting part of this is that Black actors started being a part of Uncle Tom's Cabin because of these Jubilee songs. 
So really, in order to like get roles and for there to be a black entertainment culture, black people had to like to make the roles that they eventually had. They had to play into what white people wanted to see. Yeah. However, one thing that was going on in the late 1870s and 1880s, there was the Hires Sisters dramatic troupe, and Sam Lucas was a part of it. And they put on plays like Out of Bondage. They put on plays by Elizabeth Hopkins, who was at that time a young Black playwright, went on to do other things. And even though their plays were minstrel show-esque, minstrel kind of comedy, broad comedy, and and things, but they they also had messages of uplift. So maybe they were, you know, enslaved in the first act, but by the third act, they had gotten to Canada or somewhere in the north and were prosperous middle class citizens, you know. And so there was that trajectory going on. And you know, I, I just love Sam Lucas. And one thing that I really admire about him is that he was in those plays after having started off as a minstrel. And then in the early 1900s, he was the first Black to portray Uncle Tom on film, in a silent film, in the 19-teens. And you can see clips of, of this on YouTube. But what he said in an interview one time, and and he was sort of like boasting about his talent as an actor. He goes, Uncle Tom didn't talk like, you know, a field hand and he didn't overly emote or anything. You know, he was a dignified person and I don't overact when I play Uncle Tom. And you can see that in the YouTube clips, I I find it very touching because he was truly an actor who wasn't capitalizing on caricature and stereotype for his performance, but was actually portraying and inhabiting the character of Uncle Tom, which he took very seriously. Yeah. Your book talks about kind of a spectrum of Black entertainment. Mm -hmm. And as much as there was parody in a way of like making fun of Black people, there was always like subtext. Black people weren't on stage just constantly degrading themselves. There was more to it. Right. And it's hard sometimes to find the dividing line between making fun of and having fun with, especially when we're talking about Black performers. It's easier when they're white people, but (laughs) but when they're Black performers, it's a little harder because Black performers chose to enter minstrelsy. And when they were performing in front of Black audiences, I suspect it was a very different kind of performance. I suspect there was talk back, you know, between the audience and the performers. I suspect there was a lot of winking going on from the performers to the audience. They were all in on the joke. They were all the in crowd. There's no way for us to know that. I so wish there was a way for us to know that, but we just don't today. But I think what is significant about this trajectory over the last quarter of the century was the way in which Black Americans took agency for their own entertainment groups. So even the Fist Jubilee Singers, which began with a white director, the second iteration of them, George White, fell from a stage and had an accident that incapacitated him, which created a space for a black singer, Frederick Loudon, to take over the troupe. He took the troupe all around the world. You know, they went to Australia, New Zealand. They sang at the Taj Mahal. And so he was one 
of many black entrepreneurs who began to manage their own troops. And there were others. There were other black entrepreneurs who had their own jubilee troops and sometimes not even jubilee troops, but their own choirs who didn't even sing spirituals. They sang other repertory. So we see this kind of shift and an era of black entrepreneurship, which was still constrained by racism It was still constrained by troops not being admitted to boarding houses and restaurants and train cars and things like that, and even worse, physical danger. But it was a big step forward and probably one that nobody in the 1870s could have foreseen when the Fist Jubilee Singers started out on their tours. It was a pretty big and significant shift. While we're on the Fist Jubilee Singers, that's something I kind of forgot about was From their beginning, they would only perform where Black people were allowed and where they were allowed to sit wherever they wanted. That was a thing that they were committed to from the beginning. Correct. I don't think they always had control over where Black audiences would sit, but they had to be admitted with white audiences for sure, or they wouldn't sing. Yeah, that's an interesting aspect, because the Vistubly singers weren't setting out to just perform for white people. You talk about even on the tour, they would like stop specifically at like black churches and stuff. Yeah, they went to black churches, black orphanages, all sorts of institutions. They did a lot of charity work. They did set out to sing for white audiences because they were the, they were the people who had the money. But once they were on the road, yes, absolutely, they were very generous. And in fact, there was that great Chicago fire of 1871 that decimated the city. They took all of their profits, which wasn't a lot, but they gave everything they had to victims of the fire. So that guided their kind of ethos from the very beginning. Let's talk about women. Women began to take a larger role in these enterprises. Ella Shepard, who was an original Fist Jubilee singer, who functioned as an assistant director, helping rehearse the choir, and just really a personal secretary for every white person on the tour. I mean, she was just an absolute saint. Toward the middle to the end of the tour, she started transcribing some of the spirituals. In her diary that I just read a couple years ago, she listed something like eight or 10, I can't remember, spirituals specifically that she transcribed, but she never got credit for in the printed music. I just would like to call attention to the invisible labor of women. It was invisible because they were women and also because they were black, but they did a lot of labor. And in this new book I'm working on, I'm trying to really highlight that and credit it where I can. Like a lot of women were pianists for these independent groups that traveled. Of course, they were singers. Uh, They were often married to the leader of a group, so sometimes they were co-managers. Frederick Loudon's wife, Harriet, was a co-manager of the Fist Jubilee Singers. And so whether they were playing a role as vocal artists or instrumental artists or as business managers, women were increasingly playing an important role. And of course, they went on to be educators as well, which was also extremely important. That is important. Yes, you can't forget the women. There's definitely a through line to the present. There's a through line to the present because I would argue that the spirituals of the Fist Jubilee Singers inspired so many later composers, both black and white, to compose artistic arrangements, art arrangements, 
kind of like classical music, of the spirituals. And so that all traces back to them, even if they're wildly different in character and style. And so in a way, I think of those spirituals as legacy spirituals more than folk spirituals, even though folk spirituals were the original manifestation just because we know them, they're preserved in recordings and they're preserved in print and that's how they're transmitted and that's how we learn them. Whereas the folk spirituals exist in the moment and then you will never hear that version again, ever, 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 by definition. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing about recording these spirituals, whether they're being recorded in print or in a recording or on film or on TV or any other mode that we have today, is the way it has kind of changed perhaps our conception of legacy. Yeah, we still have these songs because of this performance culture we just talked about. Mm -hmm. The earliest recordings of the Fist Jubilee singers date from 1909. So we have a pretty good idea of what those early Jubilee singers sounded like. We have no idea what folk spirituals sounded like. We can listen to oral histories. Those are great treasures. And, you know, we learn a lot from them. But it's still not the same as having a recording in 1840 at a camp meeting or something like that, you know, or on a plantation or in a praise house. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. Brooklyn, it was really a delight to meet you. I love this project, and I really appreciate your curiosity about all of this. So thank you for having me. We the Black People will be out in December, but I will be back in 2023 with a whole lot more questions and a whole lot more relevant, important, and wildly interesting Black history to share with y'all. Catch y'all in January. And don't forget to keep telling people about We the Black People. All power to all people, y'all. 